This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to Masters in Business. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Bloomberg Radio. And today's guest is someone uh, you will find absolutely fascinating. First, let me give you a brief intro. How do I begin to describe Cliff Asnes? He is the founder of AQR, which is a $120 billion asset management firm slash hedge fund. AQR stands for Applied Quantitative Research. Fascinating gentleman, really, really interesting background, undergraduate, University of Pennsylvania, Wharton Economics, UPenn uh, engineering degree, a double, engineer, double major, goes to University of Chicago, ends up with an MBA slash PhD in the Chicago program, um, eventually takes a, a time off to go to Goldman Sachs, where at age 29, he's the head of the quant group. Uh, just an absurd absurd resume. Pull up the papers that he's written, uh, dozens of award-winning, best in, best in show, best of the year, just really a phenomenally interesting and insightful guy. A little background as to how we met and how he ended up doing the show, because um, as he jokingly said during the interview, I, I stalked him for a while. So Cliff writes very frequently which is something that we do in our shop. And I really like people who take all their thoughts and put them down in an organized, structured fashion. And they have something interesting to say. And lots of lots of things that he writes are, are just fascinating and insightful. And it, just a touch of humor, a dollop of humor thrown in. You look at some of the headlines of his white papers or his blog post, and you'll see some really clever, amusing uh, titles that with lots and lots of pop cultural references. In in addition, there ain't a whole lot of hedge fund managers running the sort of money he is that tweet on a regular basis. And so he published, he was one of the signatories to the letter of Ben, ben Bernanke, worried about hyperinflation and, and the collapse of the dollar. And I called him and a number of people out on it. And while many of the people who, who were on the wrong side of the hyperinflation debate kind of pretended they never said it, Cliff came right back at me on Twitter. Well, you know, there's still time, but so far it looks like I'm wrong and you're right. Hey, you don't get that sort of response from people. Usually you get a lot of arrogance and pushback and we'll see. You know, it's only been five years. Give it another decade. But he's not that way. He's like, well, so far I've clearly been wrong. And, you know, he's a real data guy. And I respect that tremendously. Um, You'll find he's not your typical billionaire hedge fund manager. Uh, extremely, even though he doesn't do a lot of media, and even though I stalked him for a good year to get him on the show, he was really stunningly charming and and self-effacing and witty and not at all what you would imagine a lot of people in his position are like. And if you read some of his writings, they're very, very you know, here's the data, here's the context, here's here's what the details are, and, and that's pretty much it. They're very aggressive. They're a little in your face, but he's got the goods to back it. If he's in your face, it's because the numbers are there, and he's, at heart, a numbers guy. So we stopped just around the two-hour mark. I'm not kidding when I say this could have gone another two hours. We absolutely would not have run out of questions. I find him to be one of the most fascinating people in finance, Lots of what he writes is really, really influential. It moves the debate forward. It moves the argument of finance forward. And um, 
I think this is one of the most interesting conversations uh, we've had on the show. So without me babbling a whole lot further, I think you're really going to enjoy our conversation with AQR's Cliff Asnes. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is someone who I've been chasing for a while to have on the show. I'm going to introduce him first and then give you his curriculum vitae, and that'll be the first uh, half hour of the show. Cliff Asnes, welcome to the program. Thank you, Barry. I'm excited to be here. Um, I'm, I'm actually really excited to have you. Let me, For those of you who are not in the financial industry and may not be familiar with Cliff Asnes's name, we have a little bit of, of financial royalty here. First, you're the fo- founder and chief investment officer of AQR, which runs about $120 billion Correct. in both hedge funds and traditional strategies. Correct. I have a few co-founders, David Cabrillo and John Liu. Those were the guys that you were working with at Goldman Sachs? Correct. When Before we get to Goldman Sachs, you graduated UPenn I did. with a degree in economics from Wharton and a simultaneous degree... Bachelor's of Science in Engineering. Yes. Either one of those is a heck of a, a degree to have, a, a lot of lot of effort, a lot of work, both of them at once. That's really an impressive- uh, I a, didn't know any better and had no social life. They, there you go. So you go from Wharton to Chicago at the Booth School. It may not have, was it called wasn't, the Booth wasn't School Wasn't the then? Booth School then. But it was the Chicago- I'm, get, I'm giving David his due. Was the Booth School, just wasn't called it yet. And you were the research assistant to Eugene Fama. Correct. Known as the father of the efficient market hypothesis. We'll get to that a little later because you're not exactly an EMH type of guy. And um, he chaired your doctoral dissertation. You got your PhD, um, which is not in any specific area, it's just a PhD in- No, in the- um, people always ask me this. It's uh, You get it from the business school- you effectively major in whatever you wrote your dissertation in, but it's a generic business school PhD. And so you decide to write your dissertation on how you could use momentum and value to beat the market when your doctoral thesis advisor is the guy who says, no, you can't. Yes, that was um, with some trepidation. He and his co-author, who was also one of my advisors, Ken French, had already done a lot of work on value. French Fama. French so Fama, exactly. Again, more financial royalty, yeah. to say the least. Um. They had already done a lot of the pioneering work on value investing. And value investing, it's still a fight. It's still arguable whether it works because markets are irrational or whether it works because it's a risk premium of some kind. And we could spend a whole show talking about that. Momentum, I guess some people argue about it, but I think the literature is far stronger on the irrational side. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it was scary to tell. tell, I've told the story for years, going up to Gene and saying, I want to write a dissertation on on price momentum, the simplest of all momentum To Gene Fama, Dr. Fama. And and then I mumbled the second part, uh, and it works really well. (laughs) Because a dissertation saying momentum is terrible is a perfect Fama dissertation. Right. You know, look at these fools following this. To his credit, and this is actually, I think, a warm story. Um, He has his opinions, but he is brilliant, and he's open-minded. He don't change his mind, but he is very comfortable. He said, if it's in the data, write the paper. Wow, that's really interesting. So the weather in Pennsylvania is bad enough. What made you say, I want to go to Chicago? Oh, it gets worse. I had to choose between Chicago and Stanford. Okay. Um, They had precisely the same uh, scholarship program for PhD. PhD students get a good deal. We don't actually pay. Nice. Uh, It was exactly the same. And um, Chicago at that point, probably still, um, was just an incredible program. I got advice from so many people saying, "If if you're serious about finance and can go to Chicago, go. But it was pretty hard not to go to Stanford. I can imagine. Did you know you would be working with Fama beforehand? No. Uh, he kind of chooses you, and I got lucky, and he he chose me. 
Um, he was one of the reasons I'd certainly heard of him, but less so than you can imagine. I was a little naive. Mm -hmm. um, I just walked around, said, I want to study this more. Where should I go? Got the advice to go there. Took Gene's class. Uh, and then at the end of his the first year, he asked somebody to TA this class next year. And I got lucky. He, he gave me the tap. That's great. Now you leave, you graduate, you get your your doctorate. No, I left without the doctorate for Goldman. I left to take a year off. Oh, left okay. to take a year off. To That's why it's to, not doctor to find essence. myself. No, I, I I got it eventually. Okay, um, but nobody not, calls you doctor. It's not doctor essence because it's massively pretentious for finance PhDs. <laughs> it is, it is. To use the word doctor, and I'm afraid you'll ask me to check your hernia. Right. Well, what but, we do on I Friday do, night. But I did get the PhD. Right. Uh, along the way. Um, so now you end up at Goldman. You actually be eventually become uh, director of quantitative research for asset management. At age 29, you formed the Goldman Sachs Global Alpha Fund, which was a quant vehicle for deploying their capital using your quantitative metrics. That's at age 29. And then 16 years ago, you found AQR, which stands for Applied Quantitative Research. I didn't know anyone knew that anymore, yes. I guessed that, by really? the way. I guessed that and punched it in, when and we, it came when up When we thought AQR. about starting our own firm, we had a whole bunch of, you know, three of us who were thinking about it. Should we do this? Should we not? We ended up spending almost all the time talking about what we should name it, and we came up with the IBM of, of firms, about the most boring name you could imagine. But it fits what we do exactly. It, so. it, and it's better, because when you first see AQR, it's like, all right, it's Asness, and then- Yeah, people are still looking for the Q You know, they're they looking for, right. And uh, I left out, by the way, some of your awards. Top paper um, from the uh, Graham and Dodd Award in 2003 and 2011. Uh, best Perspectives piece for the Financial Analyst Journal. Is that yeah. what that is? Uh, 2004. And then the Portfolio Management Best Paper Award, 01, 03, and, and 2013. That's all the time we have. Thanks for coming <laughs> by, Cliff. So so really, the, the first question I got to ask you in the last minute we have in this segment is... What made you decide to go into not just finance, but quantitative finance? First, there was total indecision. Um, I took this, you mentioned my undergrad. I was an engineer and a business school uh, student because I had no idea what I wanted to do. I was fairly mathematical. And my father read about this program, this dual degree program, and said, why don't you do this? You can decide later. That was the total amount of planning. I liked the finance. Uh, I liked, I, I found it intellectually interesting. And to be honest, uh, you know, you never know. You look back when you were, you were 20 and, and you, you try to figure out if you planned it or not. Um, but I think I was attracted to the idea of something that I found intellectually fascinating that you could make an actual career out of uh, that wasn't uh, archaeology. I just upset all the archaeologists out there. <laughs> I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today is Cliff Asnes. He's the founder and chief investment officer of AQR, which Fortune magazine called one of the most important and influential hedge funds in the world. Cliff, let's talk a little bit about the quant crisis of 07. And I'm just going to quickly set the, the table. Sure. We, had, we had the Bear Stearns wobbling a bit, then the Bear Stearns hedge funds around June of 07. Mortgage hedge funds, sure. Right. They blew up, and uh, that was a whole nother issue. And then we saw in August a lot of things hit the fan all at once. That was a really rough period that began a period where, uh, let I don't want to talk about the entire financial crisis, but the quant crisis in 07, you guys saw a, a short period of time, you lost 13% of assets. That that had to be a, a hellish period to live through. 
I um we can't do this segment because I've blocked it all out. Okay, so it's just all suppressed. So before we then let me let me try and free that up. Okay, so describe we're do these association that's psychology right. things. So so describe for listeners who may not be familiar with what quants are. What is a quant? What is the quantitative approach to investing? Sure. Um, there are some other uh, people who will do quantitative techniques. I'll describe it very generally and as it applies to us. Quant investment managers are about, I would say uh, two words describe them very well. They're about averages and they're about diversification. They're not about kind of the sexy side of here's my best stock pick. Uh, sometimes I respond if people ask me, uh, you know, what's your favorite stock or what's your biggest holding? I look at them and go, I don't know, uh, which is usually <laughs> true. And they get very confused because we own thousands of things. Uh -huh. But let me give you some examples. If cheap stocks measured you have any of your favorite ways, price divided by earnings, cash flow, dividends, sales, tend to beat expensive stocks on average. Over time. On average. Yes, on average over time. Not always, not even close to always. I wish it was always. If they tend to win, and that's all you knew and all you believed, you wouldn't bet on it by picking your three favorite cheap stocks and shorting your three least favorite expensive stocks. You believe in the average. You would do it with a very diversified portfolio of cheap, and you would sell or underweight, depending if it's a hedge fund or if it's a, tr a traditional portfolio, mm -hmm. a very diversified portfolio of expensive, and you'd hope that your logic and your historical evidence repeated itself over the next long term. We have found, along with others, this is not uh, unique to us, uh, a set of things that work. Like value is one of them. I didn't choose the random uh, the example randomly. You got to be careful. When I say work, I mean like a statistician. Two out of three years, three out of four years, if your car worked like this, you'd fire your mechanic. <laughs> you need an economic story why it works. Uh, I don't believe in just data. I believe in trying to understand why it works. And you need a lot of out-of-sample tests. For instance, in value and in all, in all the things we do, we have found it's not just individual stocks. We always end up discussing individual stocks. But Cheap countries measured in an analogous way at the country level. Cheap bond markets using real bond yield, slope of the yield curve. Cheap currencies using purchasing power parity. Cheap commodities using just commodities depressed versus their long-term average. Anything we've looked at shows some tendency for cheap to be expensive. Then other things exist. Momentum, which you mentioned I, uh, I, I wrote my dissertation on. Things that are getting better relatively recently tend to beat things that are getting worse. That feels like the opposite of value, but very different time frame. Say that again. Things that are getting better relatively recently. Six to 12 months. Um, be things that are still on a downslide. Yes. Um, and this uh, this is a bit of a blow to the efficient market hypothesis. Maybe one day people will reconcile them. Um, but that kind of shouldn't be. It's, it's a little too easy. I call it the new two-newspaper strategy. If you're only trading price momentum, you need a newspaper from today and a newspaper from a year ago. Right. I think I it, when I when I wrote this dissertation for Gene Fama, who is both efficient markets and the value guru, uh, I didn't say this is better than value. That would have been both wrong investing and bad graduation strategy. I said it complements value very well. They both make money. Value is a much slower turnover strategy. Mm -hmm. You often do find stocks, even though it doesn't sound common, you often find stocks that are still cheap, not as cheap as they were a year ago, but have good momentum. Mm-hmm. So both of those tend to work on average. So do other things like high quality, high profitability tends to beat poor profitability, low beta, low risk stocks tend to beat high risk stocks. Uh, to a quant, you want to trade those very diversified in as many places, not just for individual. I keep saying stocks, but I have to correct myself. But it's, it's any broadly, asset class. Anything you can trade that's liquid and you have good data on, which both makes it better investment because you can spread your bets more. Mm-hmm. 
and makes you more confident it's not just random data mining. So I want to go back to what you said, an out-of-sample set, and you didn't use the words mean reversion, but essentially what you're describing is using mathematics to analyze any place that you can put your money to work and look to take advantage of that eventual mean reversion, meaning cheap stocks will eventually get back to be fairly priced, as will expensive stocks will eventually come back down to fair. If you put the two together, I would readily agree that value investing is highly related to the idea of mean reversion. They're almost almost synonyms. Um, if you add momentum in there, it's just, again, there are more that we do, but if that's the second one, um, we would say things without a doubt mean revert, but they get there eventually. They tend to keep going the same direction for at least a little while longer before they mean right. revert. That's kind and of a, a lay way to put that. Mm -hmm. They overshoot. And just for the lay people listening, you mentioned out-of-sample set. Um, so if we're looking at tech stocks um, or we're looking at recent data, uh, describe how you would use an out-of-sample set at, to confirm that. Out-of-sample refers to the following problem. If you give me enough data or anyone with, good with computers and statistics, I will find you something that has worked in the past. It might be total gibberish. One of the most famous ones uh, is butter prices in Bangladesh. Help predict the S&P. Mm -hmm. I, I could be mangling that, but it's something like no, that. No, I recall that. And the same thing with the decreased number of pirates yeah. and the- pri the, Wait, the, there are pirates? Decreased number of pirates and the increase in, in measured temperatures. People say you could randomly find any two things. The Super Bowl effect is another right. example. Buy after the NFC, but not just the NFC, or an old the AFL team. The original AFL because team. Because they had it adjusted for the Steelers, who won annoyingly often, and it, it screwed up the, the rule. So there's no real cure for this, but there's, there's, some, there's something you can do. You can go look somewhere you haven't looked yet. One great out-of-sample test is time. And it's now been 25 years since my dissertation. That's frightening to mm -hmm. say out loud. And, and the stuff has held up. And that's a wonderful out-of-sample test. But when I'm, as you said, 29 at Goldman Sachs, a good career strategy was not, first we wait 25 years. <laughs> and if it works, we pounce. We keep going, right. So another thing you can do is say, well, if this logic works to pick stocks in the US, does it work in Europe? Does it work in Japan? All right, if it works for stocks around the world, does it work for bond markets? Does it work for commodities? Does it work for currencies? So finding these things work for other things was both lucrative because you could do it in more places, mm -hmm. but also very calming because it made you think there's a much smaller chance that you're just lucky. It's not random. There's actually random. a theme underneath. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today is Cliff Asness. He's founder and CIO of the most influential hedge fund in the world. Am I giving you a promotion? No, that's too much. Uh, no. What did they call I, I, you? One of the most influential yeah, it, it, hedge I'll funds? I'll take that. And the irony is you've been fairly critical of the hedge fund industry in general. Let, let's let talk a little bit about that. What What's your beef with, uh, with hedge funds? Well, well, first, I've been a schizophrenic on the hedge fund industry. Uh, it's kind of like having a little brother. If other Not that they're my little brother, but if they... If someone else picks on your little brother, you defend them. And if your little brother's having a good day, you punch him. Okay. Um, it, we started out in the year 2000. This is 15 years ago. We wrote a paper called Do Hedge Funds Hedge? When I was a younger whippersnapper and I got yelled at by half the big names in hedge funds. It was both fun and scary. Mm -hmm. uh, and we said they're two net long. Uh, the word hedge implies they're hedging. And they were about 40% uh, percent net long stocks. Um, meaning if you went long a dollar and short 60 cents, mm -hmm. you're still 40% exposed. That that might be a good idea for total returns, but you shouldn't pay 2 and 20 for that because you can get net long from Jack Bogle. 
6040. They, yeah. they actually, uh, Vanguard, is who you're referencing, ran a big study after the 08 crisis, and they found that a 60-40 unleveraged portfolio beat something like 99% of the hedge funds out there, and once you went net of fees, they won. Well, on the little brother comment, I think that's mostly right, but I'm going to take a little issue with that. Sure. Here's the criticism. I think hedge funds uh, do a lot of very good strategies that make economic sense and have evidence behind them for getting fees and for getting hedging. Merger arbitrage, lending capital after a situation has occurred, you have a liquidity risk, you have a deal blow-up risk, you get paid for that. Convertible arbitrage is largely, I think, a liquidity premium. Trend following and managed futures, I'm a momentum, uh, part of what we do. We think it works. There are others. Good strategies. They do them partially, not fully hedged, which is weird and adds to the price because effectively you're getting uh, part of your return from an exposure you should get more cheaply. Right. And then they charge a ton for it. So this is self-serving because it's kind of how we do it, but we think hedge funds should fully hedge and then charge less. We wrote this paper that's critical. The, some of the criticisms of hedge funds, the worst ones are when they compare them to 100% stocks. Mm -hmm. Now, they're net long, long-term, about 40% of the stock market. In geek speak, a 0.4 beta. Right. Stock market goes up 10% a day. You expect 4% on your hedge funds. But if it goes down 10%, you expect to only lose 4%. So 100% stocks is a bad comparison in general. That guy who bet against Warren Buffett is discovering this. <laughs> um, it wasn't my bet, so I'm allowed to. It's not ex post. It, was, it, it, it could have been bad for Warren, too, if we had a bear market. It's just a, 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 a bad comparison. And in five, six years of bull markets, it's a terrible comparison right. for hedge funds. 60-40 is much better, but it's still about 20% more long stocks than, than hedge funds have been historically, even mm -hmm. before the last few years. You can show this. And when the market goes up 15% a year for five years, that's 3% a year of a drag. Right. So I think that's a much better comparison. But if you do the actual dollar for dollar, you end up critical of a few things. They don't actually, this will sound weird, but take enough risk. We don't want risk. We want return. But that's how you get return is from them taking more risk. Right. So after you hedge out that, ex that market exposure, they're not quite doing enough to really move your portfolio that much. But there has historically been in our data some excess return. So I call this a tepid defense. First, I've criticized them as being too net long, not a good enough deal. Mm -hmm. But then when others have made comparisons that um, the 60-40 one's not terrible, uh, the 100% stock's a terrible comparison, I think it's been too negative. I think the truth is there are good strategies. Um, they just don't do it at a, as a good enough deal at, a, at an aggressive enough way to make it a good deal for investors. So, so in other words, and I know you don't like to pat yourself on the back, but I will. So you well that I at, love. You <laughs> you looked at this and basically said, well, when we look at the world of hedge funds, they they're not embracing risk relative to what their mandate is and they're not fully hedging and they're charging too much. And you said we can hit all three but check off all three boxes. We could really embrace appropriate measured risk in a way that makes sense, not kind of be a little bit pregnant but really be right. fully in. We could fully hedge this position, and instead of charging 2% plus 20% of the profits, the Delta Fund is 1 in 10, is one that right? 1 um, uh, uh, in 10. By the way, could we have had this conversation a few years ago, or would you have been prevented by uh, the SEC rules back then? I have no idea. I know they once sent me on TV where I had not passed my Series 7. Right. I, I shouldn't take too much time here, but I had passed it, and it passed it in the, at Goldman. It right. expired. Right. And we weren't a broker dealer, so I and then we started Who needs doing a seven, funds. Right. I had to retake it. 
So they told me, don't talk about fees. It's one of the things you're not allowed to talk about if you haven't passed the test. Right. The anchor, of course, immediately asked me about fees, which which he was told not to. Right. And I had to look like the most evasive guy right. known to man. I, I kind of said, we think they're low versus the industry. And I, I kind of looked down and prayed he didn't continue, which he didn't. That was not my high point of media. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today is Cliff Asness. We were speaking earlier about hedge funds and in general how they don't necessarily hedge and why they charge too much. And AQR's Delta Fund charges one in 10, which actually got, of all people, Vanguard founders Jack Bogle saying that seems like a uh, a pretty reasonable deal. I'm impressed. Yeah. Yeah. Quote, unquote, I'm impressed. <laughs> well, that's tough to do to impress no, Bogle. No, I've, I've known Jack for a while. He's kind. Um, the, uh, the, the mutual fund version of this is called the multi-strategy fund. Jack... I actually asked him about this afterwards because uh, if Jack Bogle says something nice about your strategy, you want to be able to quote it. And we mutually agreed how I could quote him, and I'm 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 very fond of this. Um, I did not convince Jack to invest in and recommend hedge funds. Jack doesn't like tilting away from market cap in long only. He doesn't like value. You know, he's a, and US he's straight down only. the line. Right. Yeah, well, that's a separate issue. But he's straight down the line, so I, I'm I'm not that persuasive. But I got him to say that what we do in hedge funds because of the transparency. And the fee structure is the hedge fund he hates least. The hedge which fund I am he hates. quite proud of. That's great. That's a fantastic quote. So let's let's talk a little bit about hedge funds in general, because it seems to be a very bifurcated industry. Most hedge funds seem to be really significantly underperforming, and a handful of winners. Um, not, I'm not just referring to some of your big firms, <laughs> oh, gonna... funds that have done well, but a handful of firms, not just Renaissance Technologies. It, it's really a, a, it's not a Gaussian distribution. It's not a bell curve. Oh, you it's really, a you're fat talking head. my language now. That's it's beautiful. a fat head and a long, his seat is getting closer to mine now. Yeah. It's a fat <laughs> head with a long tail and it's really just a handful of giant winners and everybody else are also runs, also rans. Why is that? Well, the industry um, has gotten more like that uh, over over time. Uh, I part of it, part of it is for good reasons. Part of it is for bad reasons. I do think uh, if the market is not perfectly efficient and some people can beat it, it's still a pretty narrow group. It's still pretty efficient right. and a pretty narrow group of people who can beat it. So, so that, a handful of all stars. In that sense, it's not that crazy. I think there's a negative reason. Too, that um, that investors of all types, of all stripes, institutional, high net worth, retail, chase performance mm -hmm. too much. Um, it, you know, they chase short-term performance and they chase multi-year performance. And certainly that's indicative. And all else equal, I prefer it when mine is good. Right. Um, I, I whine about this much more when it's going against me than when it's going for me. But I think people should spend a lot more time on the process, whether it makes sense, if they have a very long-term track record. But I think people chase too much. Mm -hmm. And particularly, people seem to look at three to five year horizons and, and chase them. And one of the few things um, that we actually know about three to five year horizons in finance is that's about the horizon <coughs> things tend to mean revert, not right. continue. That's a full cycle. That's about a cycle yeah. where, in the mutual fund world, that's about when somebody ends up on the cover. Well, hedge of, funds aren't that different. Yeah, um, and, and usually all the money plows into it just as they've peaked in a reverse. And there are some people who defy all the odds and just keep going. Uh, but some of the very large hedge funds are this effect, doing well for a while, and then the money just pours in. And I'll say it, I'll say it even when it's us. It, it's probably too much. Mm -hmm. 
So is there a dollar amount where you would say, okay, no mas? We're, it, we're closing it, it, the file? We have done that to various strategies. We are blessed in having fairly large capacity as quants. Mm-hmm. Uh, we trade very diversified portfolios, uh, big cap stocks, uh, countries, currencies. Uh, but we have closed some arbitrage strategies, the mergers and converts. Uh, we've opened and closed them. We've closed them whenever the, the market wasn't uh, amenable to, to more capital. We've tra- mm-hmm. we've closed some, uh, I wouldn't call them high frequency, but, but faster trading strategies because those tend to hit capacity faster. And there is no strategy we wouldn't close at some point uh, because there's no strategy. This is a an obvious statement that still upsets some people. There is no strategy that doesn't get worse past a certain minimum necessary point as it gets bigger. But we see that time and again. We see it in mutual funds. We see it in hedge funds. There's a dollar amount that the manager can handle successfully, can regularly make money. And beyond that, it looks like they're just gathering assets for the sake of gathering yeah. assets, and the performance goes away. I, I think it's very strategy-specific. you got to really grill your managers. Uh, if you are inclined to look for stock-picking skill, and you are thrilled with someone's track record, it's not that hard to figure out if it was mainly small cap and micro cap stocks, and they're way too big for that now. If they were a currency trader of any kind, you don't have to be a quant, but if they were a currency trader, um, it maybe it's not that crazy that they can take in. It, it right. requires some thought, but I think it's one of the key things that should be asked. Are you past the point where you can manage? The answer is going to be very different for different people, but it's always a good question. So let's talk, I'm going to pivot a little bit. Let's talk about high-frequency trading. Because I know you use you. You guys are not an HFT, no. But you certainly use a lot of um, computer-generated or algorithmically driven trading to be more productive, more efficient, lower cost for your execution. You're a pretty big defender of HFTs. Yeah, we're, in we're an SFT, a slothful frequency <laughs> trader. Um, and and you know we've been. I'll be honest. I've been trying to be very clear and careful about this. We have been a public defender of of high-frequency trading, and it and we are quantitative so it's easy to confuse those two and not we're defenders we don't think there's anything wrong with it but we don't want people to think we're doing something where we're not we're not high frequency traders it is my belief that that there's there's nothing perfect i'm not excusing all behavior and saying nothing wrong goes on um but that's true of every industry of sure. every group i'm not sure hft is worse either most of what goes on in hft which also explains most of the behavior that scares people is about making markets they make most of their money by if Barry wants to trade, comes to the market, they will take the other side of Barry's trade, uh, and then they will try to hedge that risk. And they will. And and why do they have to trade high frequency? Well, they put out a bid and an offer. They'll buy it for somewhat less than they'll sell it to Barry. I'm going to use you as my example sure. the whole way. Now let's say the market moves a little bit. They got to change those bids and offers, or else you or I could sneak in and get too good of a deal on them. Mm-hmm. They got to move it with the market. So they are canceling and correcting constantly. Why do they have to trade at near light speed? I still laugh that the speed of light has something to do with my industry. Right. It, it shouldn't. We're not in we're not in Well, physics. it's how fast electrons can move down an yeah. a, a optic fiber cable from your office to the exchange. I, I like geek equations, but that little C for the speed of light should not be in any <laughs> right. finance equations. Yet it does show up occasionally. But most of their need for speed, and I sound a little too top gun there, right. uh, but most of their need for speed comes from having to beat other high-frequency traders it's an to, arms race. To, yes, it is an arms race, but to be the one to execute Barry's trade. So by and large, and I, I think everyone, uh, almost everyone agrees with this. I shouldn't say everyone. Um, but uh, from Vanguard, Jack Bogle, other people have looked at this, agree they've lowered costs for investors 
Um, there's always been market making. There's always been a middleman. We might all not love a middleman, but there's right. always been someone to do this. They do it cheaper than the more mo monopolistic specialists and old market makers used to do it. Um, things that look like front running that scare people. Market makers used to do. Once someone starts to buy a lot, they get out of the way. They if get out of the selling, way. They leave, raise now, their offer. Unethical front running is you have some information that someone's about to trade that you shouldn't have. Mm -hmm. But observing trades and saying where there's so something, there's probably something else. So we're going to start to move the price. That's gone on forever. It's just rational. Anyone making a market's going to do that. So it's not a blanket defense, but we think most of what they do is provide trading liquidity cheaper. The the two big complaints that I think are credible. The first is what some people call packet sniffing. So it's not an order that's been executed. It's not a trade. It's Cliff is sending an order to buy 100,000 XYZ. They sniff that order out before it hits the exchange and jump in line in front of you and flip what you were about to buy to you anyway, but at half a cent higher. So that's one complaint. The other complaint is, you know, it's like the old joke about a banker is happy to lend you money as long as you don't need any. They provide liquidity until it's necessary, and then, hey, this is getting a little too hairy for us. We'll close uh, on Neither of those are, are jokes. Those are quite serious and accurate statements. Um, but I will agree with you um, on the first one, and I'll, I'll take a little issue with the second one about them running away. Um, when it comes to information they're not supposed to have, if anyone has private information that they're not supposed to have, that should be stopped. I think that's a relatively tiny part of what goes on, and I think – you know, traders have attempted to do stuff like this since time immemorial. There was probably someone on the, uh, outside of uh, Rome uh, right. doing this uh, 2,000 years ago. But if we find a place to, uh, someone's finding information that, that's private, that's using them, uh, they're jumping ahead of me or you, that should be stopped. Well, it's not out. that it's private. It's that the exchange has the information. They're providing it to people who are paying for well, it. You get into a gray area when people are paying for it. If it's disclosed and they're paying for it, you could make a caveat emptor article that we all know are being front run, and these these profits uh, are are it's a competitive world. These guys are hyper competitive with each right. other, so they then try to undercut each other and providing more competitive liquidity. You and now make you have that dark argument. pools and you have other things that it's no longer as profitable I, as it was. It, it, I am still perfectly fine. I would like to see it be voluntary, but if I were setting up an exchange, I probably would make that not allowed. I think the confidence would be larger mm -hmm. than the gain to that. So I think it's a bad idea, though. I could make a more uh, you know, geeky economic argument that if it's disclosed, it's okay. I'd like to see that stopped. The other, the the other part of them running away. I think they do run away. I'm mm -hmm. not taking issue with your facts. I just think market makers have always run away. I, I think this fantasy that uh, that in the old days they would take a loss for the team, ready, willing, and able to make a market and to I, provide stability regardless of market conditions. I don't think you will ever find a market maker in these kind of uh, markets and these kind of trading who buys at a price they know is, a, is, is, is above the equilibrium price or sells at a price they know is the true price to, uh, out of duty. Uh, and I don't think it's any less than it was before. I think they used to run away before. So I'm not saying they're wonderful. I'm saying they're precisely as cowardly and, and venal as they've always been. And we shouldn't expect different. They're, they're the same as it ever was. It's yeah. just technology instead of humans. The more things change. Uh, you can hang around a little bit. We can keep talking uh, for the podcast portion. I've been speaking with Cliff Asness. He's the founder and CIO of AQR. If you enjoy these conversations, be sure and check out our complete chat. This will go on for hours after this. Uh, you can find that on Bloomberg.com, at SoundCloud, and, of course, at Apple iTunes. Uh, be sure and check out my daily column on Bloomberg View. Follow me on Twitter, at Ritholtz Cliff. What's your Twitter handle? 
Uh, Sumerian. It might Spelled be with a 99. C. Uh, it, it, someone go read old Conan comics, and that's how, it's how they spelled it in the old Conan. It, it's comics. also just search for a Cliff Asness on Twitter. Work. You can find hiding. it. This is Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business, the podcast. This is this is my favorite part where I don't have to worry about. I'm taking the earpiece off. I don't have to worry about um, the radio, the times. We just kick back. Cliff, thank you so much for coming by. We were off air. We were describing. I was chasing you for a while. And I figured I would wear you down and get you here eventually. Yeah, I um, I wasn't really avoiding you, but I must tell you, you having so many amazing people, many of which I, I consider uh, people I study, uh, wore me down and said I want to be part of this group. That that's the that was the trick. This is I the had... only sucking up I'm going to be doing in this whole okay. thing. And that was more, it. I more hope, I hope up, you enjoyed I, it. I, I do. I enjoyed that. The the my Rolodex is not bad, not the greatest Rolodex, but not too bad. And I knew enough people. Uh, between Michael Mobison and Laszlo Barini and a handful of guys like that, I knew that there would be enough critical mass that I would eventually start honing in on guys like yourself and Bill Gross. So it's really a stalking and, kind and of And Bob Schiller and Ray Dalio. We're triangulating. Yeah. And- yeah. Now, since I just name-dropped Bob Schiller, you mentioned something in one of your papers. By the way, I've I've read and my head of research has read a lot of what you guys crank out, and you put out some really interesting papers. You. you talk about being somewhere between Fama and Schiller, and the funny thing is you and I both wrote something after the two of them won the Nobel, the difference being mine was this fluffy 800-word piece, and you put out a 3,000-word dissertation on why they're both right, and that's why they both won. The... um. Well, it, it it was it was fun. Uh, I co-wrote that with John Liu. Uh, he's one of my founding partners, and um, also both of us had Fama as uh, co-chairs of our dissertation. So we oh, really so we we had a similar, um, it, you know, we've worked together forever, so our perspective is similar in that sense. But we also had a similar history, and I would say we started out as Fama's students and and are incredibly schooled by him in that efficient markets way of of thinking. Uh, I wrote my dissertation early on on momentum trading, which is already a bit heretical for the efficient right. markets hypothesis. Uh, today, there's this big fight about why certain things have worked historically, like like cheap beating expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, one camp, the the efficient markets pharma camp, says, well, if cheap wins, it's because it's riskier. You're assuming more risk. You're buying these small cap or these value stocks that have fallen out of favor. Yeah. You assume the risk and therefore it pays off with a better return over yeah. time. Another, yeah, exactly right. Uh, another camp, and that would be consistent with an efficient market. You can make more if you take more risk, and that's not sure. A that's violation. not inefficient. You're just right. You're you're at the the hundred dollar table, and the payouts yeah. are greater. The other camp, the inefficient, the irrational camp, as typified by Bob, is sharing in the Nobel Prize, but it's certainly broader than than Bob. Is and I'm just using the example of value. Cheap beats expensive because people make errors. Uh, if something is doing poorly, they think it'll go on forever, and it should be. You should pay less for it, but not as much. This would be a terrible English sense, but not as much less as the actual price. It goes mm-hmm. too far, and vice versa. Things that are are going well. Um, and we saw lots of examples of that in 2000s. We saw stocks trading for less than. Book value less than cash on hand, things like that. Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll never forget along the small cap slash value thesis. There was a company I had traded earlier, Micromuse. It had run up to two hundred bucks. It collapsed. I want to say at about two forty three with three dollars cash on hand. 
debt-free, profitable? How is this possible? You were waiting for this thing to go out of business. Eventually, gets it goes up 400% and gets taken out by IBM. We, um, we launched AQR in late 1998 um, after a very good run at Goldman. And the first thing we did, and we didn't we were quant, so it's very diversified, but implicitly did, was fight the tech bubble. Mm -hmm. um, value investing did not have a very good 1999, to say the least. It had the, an the utterly, last five years of the 90s were yeah, pretty terrible. Uh, but 99 was a crescendo of doom. Um, and uh, I, I don't mean to be melodramatic. No, there, no, it's but, a great uh, phrase. But uh, it certainly felt that way. And again, it's not all we do. For instance, momentum uh, was good enough to offset value for much of the late 90s. Not in 99. Value was so bad. Um, so I, I cut my teeth, at least at my new firm, not, not originally at Goldman, on fighting the tech bubble, and I still have the scars of that. So I, I fought you, a lot of battles since then, but that was still the worst. So let's talk about the word bubble, because I recall I reading- I did say it, yeah. You you basically think everybody over you- Well, no doubt the tech bubble, that was a genuine bubble. This, but since then, you, you've said people overuse the term almost to the point of making it meaningless. This is a great way to explain how I'm in the middle of Bob Schiller and Gene Fama. Uh, Gene- will tell you, and I've recently had this conversation with him again, there, there's nothing he'll look back on and say, yeah, that was definitely a bubble. And he's very intellectually consistent. He, no matter how strongly you, th you feel and how smart you think you are, you don't want to argue with, with, with Gene. He's, it's pretty hard to beat. Really? I still don't agree with him on this. Uh, but he, but he you makes won't, you won't do a public debate no, with I, him No, I, I, I would run from that and <laughs> hide. Uh, but I do believe bubbles occur. Uh, Gene, Gene um, at least, he might not go as far as to say they don't occur. He'll say we can't really prove. They've occurred. I think there was a definite bubble in tech stocks. I think, and I won't accuse Bob Schiller directly of this. Uh, I love Bob. I, I don't know what he, he does. But I think people uh, on the irrational side use the word bubble too much. And certainly on the Wall Street side, mm -hmm. there's a bubble in everything. I, I, right. I had a presentation where I, had, I threw up like 20 headlines from bubbles in markets to bubbles in individual stocks. To We have dumbed down the word bubble. I, the definition I like of bubble is it's still subjective, but it's I can't come up with any plausible future scenario where this yields a return that's even remotely acceptable. It could be a low return. So the funny thing about that line of yours is I used it in a column headline, The Bubble in Bubbles. Well, we're going to be in court over that. Okay. <laughs> um, but your definition of what a bubble is, is there is just no rational, yeah. reasonable price in the future based on what you're paying and, today. And this was real time, and we have the papers to show it. During the tech bubble, we tried very hard to say, could we be wrong about this? What if you assumed the high end of Wall Street earnings growth, which was insane right. assumptions at the time. They weren't going to happen. Yeah, But assume them. Assume people are willing to accept less on stocks than the past, because the less you'll accept in return, the more you can pay in price. That was counterintuitive, because everyone was assuming it would go on forever. Let's assume it's rational in a in a in an efficient markets world. We couldn't get close to the current price. I was willing to call that a bubble. I wrote um, something I called a partial book draft that never, you asked me earlier yeah, why, uh, why, no why book I've never written you. a book. I tried once. Uh, you don't want to write a book uh, about something being a bubble and have it start to crash around you. I kept revising the book for about six months and then I decided I'd rather make money than finish the book. There you go. <laughs> and no one wants a book. Hey, there was a bubble and I called it, but I forgot to tell you real time. <laughs> um, but I was, I was writing this thing and I wrote articles on it that thank God were were out there, but that I'd call a bubble. Let me give you a, a current example of something that I think is a very expensive market, but people call a bubble all the time is the bond market. Mm -hmm. uh, bond real yields, 
uh, using forecasts of inflation, talking about U.S. bonds, are perilously close to zero. Right. They bounce around. Uh, they've been, it, it, that is about as low as they've ever been several times in history. That's pretty bad. Zero is pretty bad. Can I come up with a scenario where these bonds do okay over the next 10 years? Well, I don't call this a plausible scenario. Can I come up with is not the, the, my best guess. Just, it, just something that's not wholly ridiculous. Yeah. And, and you can come up with it with one word. And you know the word, Japan. Japan. You knew it. And now you have Germany yeah. slight, yielding, almost briefly yielding less than Japan. And by no means, and, and just to reiterate, am I predicting the U.S. turns into Japan from 90 to pretty much still now, um, maybe 90 to 2000 at the worst. Um, but is it possible? Yeah. So I am willing to say it's a quite expensive market versus history. That's a different statement. Bubble has a level of assurance. It has a level right. of insanity. It has a level of you should go out and short this thing. Uh, the other problem with bubble is much more practical. And this applies even when they're real bubbles to the tech bubble. Timing is all, always an issue. Right. Uh, people forget, again, Bob Schiller's done tremendous work, but he started saying it at least in 1996. Um, it, it, a rational exuberance yeah, yeah. was more or less his phrase that got Greenspan that Alan in Greenspan trouble in '96. That Greenspan right. said it, tanked the market, and then had to retreat from it. I think that was quietly Bob's fault, which I would find so much fun if I were Bob. Right. Uh, congressional testimony tanks the market, but and this is not therefore an, proving the market is completely irrational. This is not a knock on Bob because he'd be the first to tell you not to use his stuff to time the market and, and right. actively trade. But if you did, from when he first started. Saying it, I'm not. I don't think you made money. I think round trip. We. I don't think we ever got right. back to 96. No. So we got lower returns than normal. Where his measure is very good for forecasting. Mm -hmm. But to actually make money by being an active trader, you don't want to use the Schiller PE with a 10-year horizon. The the Cape measure. Yeah. Which, which I, I which, love by the as way, a measure. If you look at the past 30 years, Cape has been showing overvalued market for something like 93 percent of the time. Which you know. That I think I, I'll, I'll trust your numbers. It's certainly something like that. I find that to be a little less of a knock. These things can wander away from normal for so long that it, it does impress upon people why you don't want to trade over this, even over a even perhaps over a thirty-year right. horizon. I have uh, if I ever find an investor will give me a fifty-year lockup, maybe I'll use the right. cape to to try to forecast things. And, and if you stop um, and think about it, because you mentioned something earlier about this, um, if you look at modern society and how much more productive and efficient I'm trying to remember where I I'm pulling this from something you you wrote but I'm I'm not remembering which paper this was uh it might have been something more informal than a white paper but uh, look at at the lack of capital intensive heavy industries think about manufacturing and what used to go into stamping out locomotives versus hey uh we're we're creating a software company. Look at Uber with no hard costs other than some code and some servers. And all the massive legal fees. Uh, but that, <laughs> that becomes, you know, that becomes a, a small cost of business as opposed to having to build these giant steel mills and these, right. you know, that, that sort of stuff. So maybe to some small degree, how more productive and efficient and less capital intensive these companies are, maybe that rationalizes somewhat of a, a, a higher return at a low, at a uh, higher PE, but that's really just a small part it, of it. It's certainly possible. The The argument I like best um, is that that people required a much higher return prior to call it the last 30 years mm -hmm. because some behavioral and some structural. Structural is it was far costlier to, to own stocks. 
you know, we all act like there was these Vanguard, Jack Bogle, 10 basis point index funds forever right. when there weren't. With, with an $8 purchase the, cost. The, the way to own stocks, and, I, and this is the behavioral part, was generally far more concentrated portfolios. I don't think many people before this call it the 70s owned the index. Mm-hmm. We look at it as if they did. But they tend to own the 10 stocks their brokers recommended at huge nifty costs. Nifty 50 was even a Oh, that a was big. insane. But at, at, at large cost, concentrated portfolios, so riskier, with a lower average return because the costs are much bigger. Trading through a broker at the old right. brokerage costs. Before they changed yeah. the fee structure. So we look at the old returns like people got those from Bogle when they weren't. They were getting it from their stockbroker with more risk. So I, along the lines of what you said, and I'd build on that. I'm not, I'm not dismissing that. I'd say- in the, in the history we look at of stock returns, perhaps people required a much higher gross level because they didn't get all of it. Right. They got much less of it, and they had to take on more risk to get it because their portfolios were more concentrated. So there is a case that it's a little more pessimistic than your case, a case that justifies higher prices today, but it also comes with a lower expected return. The lower expected return is not wrong when prices are higher, returns are lower in this world, but it's rational. So let's talk because a little bit. Because you got bit. paid too much. You don't Let, need to get paid that much. Let's talk about that because you've said recently you're in the camp that anyone looking out 10 years should rationally expect lower than average returns going forward. Yeah, I'll, I'll be specific. Um, without mean reversion in prices, because um, mm-hmm. that's too much about forecasting. Some people, I, you know, I, I probably believe in a little mean reversion um, in PEs and in, in real bond yields, right. but that's forecasting and, and, and guesswork. And just I know you're you're not a big fan of forecasting. I I try. I mean, you know, you implicitly forecast a lot of things, but if I forecast, we want to forecast two thousand things and take tiny bets on all of them. Right. I'm not. I'm especially not a fan of trying to forecast big giant things. Occasionally, something like the tech bubble will force me into a corner where there's no other bet to make. Either bet it goes up or down. Right. Uh, but uh, by and large, we try to diversify, and 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 if we do have to forecast, forecast uh, forecast as cowardly as possible. Okay, that makes um, sense. But right now, Schiller P's are around to 25. Um, without mean reversion, that means you get about a 4% real return historically on stocks from here. Um, per year, 4% per year. Per year Bond yield, not including dividends. Not, uh, no, include total return. Oh, really? Uh, to, uh, excuse me, 4% real return Okay. over inflation. Got it. That, thank God you asked, because that's really important. So that's 4% including dividends- so, and after taking off one or two percent for inflation, one or, or two now, uh, or who knows what'll be long term. If inflation right. goes up, this goes up because not because earnings growth will move with inflation. Uh, we believe, right? It makes no, sense. It makes They're sense. both nominal. Sure. So um, on a nominal basis, stocks are a great return, great investment yeah. in a period of high inflation. Uh, yeah, people on get a nominal that wrong basis all the time. Surprise inflation tends to hit all assets, including mm-hmm. stocks. But long term steady state inflation is kind of what stocks are right. built for. Right. Um. Now. Bonds, uh, it bounces around, call them 50 basis points, okay. uh, a tiny real real expected yield. Mm-hmm. So take your classic 60-40 portfolio, 60% of 4% mm-hmm. or 400 basis points, 40% of 50, rounded. It's about 2.5% real. Right, 240 and- It's a bit above 2.5. Uh, it's, it's not, right. I, did I mention Quan is in my title? I can't right. do math in front of people. It's really, <laughs> it's very vexing. Nah, All right, so six times four is 240. 240. And then you said- 50 four, times four is another 20. That's two, it's right? Um, I like to round did to Did I just te- teach Cliff Asness the A little bit. Is that a what l- A little happened? bit, but, 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 I, but I could take the derivative of it in a heartbeat. In, in the back, I just yeah. can't add. Right. Um. <laughs> The, it's fun to have kids who are 10 and 11, by the way, because I'm trying to teach them division. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's very humbling. Your kids are completely unimpressed that you're a quant of any 
kind of like, Dad, you're doing it wrong. That's not how I well, teach you Well, the way they do it now is so different than the way we learned I it. I know. And the first thing I have to do is go on the web and figure out how they're teaching it now. And it's all wrong. Uh, um, well, everything's going to be wrong to you and I. Uh, but I got to relearn. It's like it's it's a lot of work. Yeah. I got, I'm, le- I'm relearning division, but that's not the... Let me get back to it. It's 2.5% real on 60-40, roughly. Okay. That's um, about right. Um, the other numbers are all rounded, too, so we don't have to get this exact anyway. Long-term... Again, rounding, you made about 5% real on 60-40 for about 100 years. Mm-hmm. So we would forecast you make half the real return as you've made historically. Stocks are priced more expensively. Again, Schiller PE or dividend yield plus expected growth, whatever model you like. Call it roughly about more expensive than about 90% of, of the last 100 years, mm-hmm. 90% of the time. Bonds, this shocks some people, are really not worse than stocks. They're more expensive than about 90% of the time. The difference between stocks and bonds Bonds are bumping against zero, so they're more dramatic looking, but that difference in, in spread is roughly average. But they're both really low. Right. 90% and 90%, they usually don't happen at the same time. 90% stinks, another 90% bad, 90% being bad mm-hmm. stinks. Two 90% really, and now I'm not being quantitative at all, really, really stinks. We find the 60-40 portfolio is approximately as bad as it's ever been prospectively. Two and a half percent real is returns. It's about as bad as it's ever going gotten. forward. And um, by the way, people, the funny thing is with the math of this, people assume zero is as low as you can go. But if you pay attention, you'll yeah. you'll know you can actually have negative, nom- not even real returns, negative nominal returns. Certainly realized returns. Yeah. Uh, anything can happen, even over longer periods than people, than, than people think. Um, I agree with that. Uh, if we ever had negative expected returns, that would be I'd be willing to use the word bubble there. We we okay. talked about that earlier because it's negative pre- expected returns, real returns. Where negative expected real returns is likely it, the result of a bubble. Very very hard for me to imagine a world where people would rationally on stocks and bonds say, and we've seen some negative nominal returns mm-hmm. uh, on bonds. Those are places that uh, have convenience yields, meaning keep my money protected, right. uh, or maybe they're worried about deflation and they're actually expecting positive real returns. Right. Because you know, if deflation comes in, a, a, a small negative nominal is better, better um, than a big negative. You know, negative one percent. If inflation's minus two percent, that's still one percent better than than right. inflation. Uh, but if you, on your diversified, broadly stocks and bonds portfolio, if instead of two and a half, which is disastrous versus history, we were expecting zero or negative, I'd have to start. Uh, I, I there, I'd be screaming bubble. Here, I'm ex- I'm screaming more expensive than history. Lower your expectations. Which isn't the same as a bubble. Let me shift gears a little bit about with you and talk about um, the small cap premium. Sure. I love the title of your paper. Yeah, we got a channeling, little jiggy with that one. That was right? a crazy. Channeling Seinfeld a little bit. Yeah. It's real and it's spectacular uh, on the small firm effect. That was my blog entry. The title was even worse. What was the blog entry the, title? The, the blog, that was the blog entry title. The title of the paper was Size Matters If You Control Your Junk. It was a bit of a double entendre, got it, which I've got been apologizing it. for, though, so Have far. Have you really? No. Well, well, the theme of the paper was people sort of downplay. So first, let's back up. The small cap premium is buy small cap stocks over time, and you'll outperform big cap stocks. Yeah. Now, that seems some people have been questioning that as that shrunk, but your, your paper says, well, there's so much bad stocks. The S&P 500, you don't get the same sort of junk filtering into that. Yeah. So now when we look at the 2,000 small cap stock, pull out the junky, lower quality stocks, and what do you have left? Yeah, you're exactly right. You needed to do the recent research. And so let me take people a little bit back. This is 
was the first crack in the armor of the famous capital asset pricing model back in the inefficient markets, if you will. Um, back in the early 1980s, a guy named Ralph Bonds, who was a pharma student also, mm -hmm. found the first version that I know of, there might have been others, of the small firm effect, that after adjusting for the famous cap and beta, small stocks beat large stocks. And, you know, why should that be? Uh, and there have been all kinds of theories about this. Uh, turns, more risk was one of the yeah, first questions. And uh, CAPM tries to adjust for that with beta. Some of the early studies said maybe we're measuring risk wrong. Maybe the betas are really higher. That got you a little bit, not much. Maybe it's a liquidity premium. There are stories. But basically, there's one thing I don't want to confuse it with. Small value stocks. Mm -hmm. If you buy cheap small stocks, at least in the data, that's unassailable. Um, right. You know, you, Going forward, as always, will history repeat? I believe it will there, but I, I can't prove and it. And you but mentioned David Booth. David he founded Booth. Dimensional Funds, which now runs $300 billion firm. on um, that premise. If anything, that's uh, that's that's the core premise of theirs, and I'm, I am certainly a believer in that. The small firm effect, though, is exactly what it says. It doesn't buy small cheap. It buys all mm -hmm. small stocks. Uh, and should they beat large stocks? Well, that's far weaker uh, than many of the other so-called anomalies, the findings of value, momentum, a few others in, 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 in the finance literature. It's kind of the, the weak sibling uh, to those. Uh, immediately went on a bad 15, 20-year run after it was right. discovered. Has come back somewhat since then. But if you look at it through time, has other quirks. Almost all happens in January. That's not necessarily terrible, but it's a little weird. Could be a tax factor. Yeah, shakes, Nobody really knows what it is. confidence a little right. bit, even if you don't really understand why. Uh, and in general, wasn't nearly as strong as the other as the other small value uh, as small value certainly as 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 momentum small momentum whatever you want to do all, most of the rest of empirical finance was better than the small firm effect it was a weak and, and people have been losing faith in it we discovered in a relatively recent research by us and others uh, totally separate than this looks at quality investing this is something warren buffett figured out 30 40 years ago right. it took us took us a little while to get to it but What's hey, a, what's hey a, this Warren guy is on to something. Yeah. Well, we do it much geekier than he does, of course, and we do it in a diversified way. He does it by picking the right uh, quality, and he also cares about value and other things. But what's a quality stock? It's anything that you, in not just theory, but in, in intuition, anything that makes sense that you pay more for. Why would you pay more for stock? Well, if it's more profitable, if those profits are growing faster. And and you believe, by the way, this will continue, and, and you can show that, that a profitable company tends to be profitable next Mm -hmm. or whatnot, you should pay more for these. You should pay more for a lower risk company, all else equal. Mm -hmm. If it makes as much money, now sometimes they don't, of course, but if it makes as much money, we love low risk. I'll pay a little bit more if I have less risk for the same, for the same money. And finally, if they're able to pay you a bigger dividend while everything else is equal, growing the same, same profitability, same, same risk, why not? More, more dividends are good. These are all things that we call quality. We have a separate work, and we're not the only ones to look at this, but we, we, of course, love our version, that looks at these things and goes, all of these things seem to have an unexplained outperformance. Mm -hmm. And you can get in your old debate, is this risk? Is it is it inefficient markets? But we think it's very statistically valid. Uh, if you go look at other countries, it shows up again and again and again. High quality beats low quality. Then we uh, we decided to take a look at how does what does this mean for small? And we noticed something that kind of jumped out at us. The small universe was very low quality, uh, what we often call junky. Something the we entire call, universe of small capitalized stocks. There are high quality small cap, right. but it had far more junk in it, and you said this earlier, um, than, uh, as a percentage of the index than the large cap. And I think it's fairly intuitive, mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, but it turns out that small was being seriously hurt. If you believe, 
and not everyone believes this, but we believe it strongly, that high quality has and will win over, over the past. High profitability is my favorite of them. That profitable firms uh, will outperform for either risk or inefficient market reasons. Go look at small firms. You're shorting that effect. You're betting against it. Small mm -hmm. firms are less profitable, far more junky, unprofitable firms. So you're betting against something that you think works. One thing that academics and, quant and, and applied quants are pretty good at doing is saying, what if we remove that? What if right. we bet on small, but we make it uh, so they're average quality? Take what we know that's good, yeah. remove what we know is bad, what are you left with? And don't cheat. Don't only buy quality, but make it just average quality. So, so small on net doesn't have a tilt towards high quality or junk. So it's mm -hmm. just neutral on it. Turns out we've restored the small firm effect. Small crushes large. Does really uh, well. Does really well and about comparable to the value and momentum effect. We've restored it, we think, to kind of equal standing with some of the other major findings in finance. We've also confused uh, everyone, including ourselves, because we don't have a great economic story for this. It is too big of a premium. I don't yet, I like, I like to start with Gene Fama stories, with efficient market stories, and only be willing to go to inefficient markets if I fail. And small winning is one of the ones, some people find it very intuitive, but when you ask them why is it intuitive, well, they're less liquid. Well, then how come the higher quality ones win more consistently? They're, they're a little bit more liquid. Um, it's hard to come up with a great economic story why, uh, why, why small wins. Uh, value, I think, is quite easy, whether you like risk or inefficiency. Momentum, you could tell pretty simple stories about people underreacting information. Small, if two small companies merge, do they suddenly go way up in price because now they're a big company and have a lower cost of capital, a lower expected return, and a higher price? They don't seem to do that. There are weird things that go on. Why small works, we have not helped, but we have helped restore it to its kind of so you don't status. have a you don't have an you don't have a narrative that explains the data as to why small minus junk trounces uh, large. There's not a narrative. I really hate to say no, but I got to go with not yet. Let me be more optimistic and okay. say not yet. And it's nothing as simple as well. Big caps run into the the law of big numbers, small has huge headroom and there's a lot of place for them to go as more and more people discover them, find them, and they it, grow in size. Barry, that could absolutely be the answer, but that's a very inefficient market Let me know story. if you have any other issues you can't solve. No, 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 no. I'll bang no, it no, out no. one after another. Um, I, <laughs> uh, you get, that could be the answer. You jumped mm -hmm. on the credit a little too fast there Okay. Because I said I like to start to try to figure out a risk story. Mm -hmm. Inefficient market stories are quite simple. To come up with why people uh, people are irrational. People That's underpay why they do this. for sure. these these th these things. They don't appreciate the upside. Inefficient market stories, which I'm not quite willing to go there yet, but those are easy to come up with. Um, they these are neglected. People just don't pay as much attention. Right. There's no Wall um, Street coverage whatsoever. They're it, it, un unknown. There are a host of stories like that. I like to get there after I've exhausted all possibilities. I don't feel we have. Okay. I have not found yet. This is the part a risk based story, a rational story. Mm -hmm. All those stories, when you say they grow faster, why doesn't the market recognize that, Barry? The market, if an efficient market, the market should recognize exactly what you said, well, that it has upside and large cap doesn't. There's, there's not a lot of coverage. Remember, institutions have certain rules about what they can and can't yeah. buy. There's a hundred little I, I'm, stories. I'm completely and I with sure, you. I bet you know all of them. I am completely with you. And, and at this point, I have to say, my money would be on some version of that being right because I haven't come up with the others, mm -hmm. but they are in the inefficient markets irrationality camp. So uh, so this conversation about small cap and value, um, 
small tr- value could sm- be risk. Let me throw that in because value can be very risky. But uh, go on. But you you triggered two things I want to not forget to ask you. One is about smart beta and factor investing, and the second is what happens when you take a quantitative approach to Warren Buffett. So wh- oh. where do you want to go with that? Well, let me start with with smart beta. Um, you and I talked about hedge funds earlier, and I gave you a schizophrenic answer. Mm-hmm. I'm going to give you another one. Um, I am both a fan of smart beta and its most famous version, fundamental uh, indexing, mm-hmm. uh, and um, a skeptic in a in a very narrow sense. Now, before before you get into too much detail, I know you're friendly with Rob Arnott, friendly who we're also yeah. right. We're also friendly with, and he was here not too long ago. Some people have called him the father of fundamental indexing. Um, I don't know if that's overstating it a little bit. Um, I don't think it's overstating it. I, I do think, and, 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 and Rob's an honest guy, he'll, he'll tell you this, uh, people were doing some fundamental indices. Um, There's some people at Goldman Sachs. I know oh, Rob's Shaughnessy as well. Uh, um, but the father of something is an early adapter who's the one most responsible for its popularity by far. And, that, and that's certainly it. Rob. Yep. My disagreements with Rob, and we, we are friends and we are co-authors, have been intellectual, never about whether uh, they would outperform. Um. I believe, and I think the math is more of a proof than a belief, I'll right. go far on this one, that fundamental indexing versus the market is a rather clear, straightforward tilt towards value. If you build a fundamental- Hold, hold on, let me stop sure. you there, because I want to break this down. So so people who are listening understand what this is. You take the S&P 500, it's a market capitalization weighting, which Rob points out, and uh, Jim O'Shaughnessy also points out, that at the end of a cycle, everybody piles in- and you end up with this wildly disproportionate handful of stocks um, attracting all the assets in the S&P 500. We saw it in 99-2000. Yeah. We saw it again um, in 07-08. But towards the end of that cycle, half a dozen to a dozen stocks are driving the vast majority of the gains in, in the index. And so when that and some uh, prices are exceptionally high against fundamentals, some are very low. And so this all, they, they just- in the down cycle, they really the big ones end up really getting punished. And the first version that we knew that there was an issue here was if you just take the S and P five hundred and equal weighted all of them. Now there are reasons to say why do I have Apple and yeah. some tiny little company at the same weight? But it tends to at certain points to outperform. So that's not what we're talking no. about. We're talking about weighting companies instead of based on their capitalization. You mentioned these earlier. You mentioned uh, dividends, earnings growth, sales growth, book value. There's a whole bunch of fundamental factors. Let me give you the example. First, uh, I respect the heck out of both Rob and and Jim. Um, They are a little bit more on that. that. We talked earlier about the Schiller-Fama spectrum from efficient markets to inefficient. Mm -hmm. Maybe they're just more courageous than me. I'm in the the muddy middle. They're a little bit more towards Schiller in their explanations. I'm always, I think bubbles and insanity like you talked about do happen. Uh, just more rarely than probably those guys do, and I'm more willing to entertain efficient market risk-based. My, maybe it's just in my DNA, and I'm still scared of my my professor. Um, but <laughs> that so, that wouldn't be DNA. That would be yeah, yeah, that's uh, learned. That be, that's uh, nurture, learned. That's nurture, not right. nature. You're right. <laughs> if if fundam- if a fundamental index, let's make it simple and just use one measure, earnings, mm-hmm. is formed weighting things by earnings. I had a friend Bob Jones who was doing this back in the '80s at, at Goldman Sachs. Um, it turns out that if you do the math and you compare an index weighted by earnings to one weighted by market cap. Mm-hmm. It's exactly, not similar, but exactly the same as starting with the market cap and tilting with a precise, simple formula towards low price to earnings stocks 
and away from high-priced earning stocks. So it's it's away from momentum and towards value. Away it's from towards growth value and towards value. Toward, yeah, that's more accurate. Uh, momentum will vary. Some sometimes right. Uh, it'll value be stocks can have momentum. Yeah. So it's away from growth towards value. Now, what I think Rob has come up with is a great way to explain value investing in a different way. Explaining it as ignoring prices and waiting by fundamentals, but you get to the exact same place. What I don't think, and Rob knows this, we've argued about it, we've debated it at the Q Group, a, mm -hmm. a quantitative uh, finance gathering, is I think he's come up with a great way to explain and market value investing. But, but that is different than saying he's come up with something that we didn't know about before. We did know about value investing. If mm -hmm. he's brought more people into the fold, uh, if, if, if on net this makes markets better, because I think if more people did value investing, some of the efficacy would go away like it does for any strategies, right. but prices would be a little more accurate. Right. These are all good things. But I don't think it was as new. My title, as you know, for this was, uh, what was it? Fundamental indexing, not, uh, not, not indexing, not new, still awesome. That, that was the smart beta. Yeah, smart beta, not, excuse not, me. Not I was beta, thinking fun, right. not, not beta, not new, still awesome. Right. And why is it not new? Because we knew about value forever. For a long time. You gave the example in the tech bubble of a few stocks driving everything. Mm -hmm. You know what? If you tilted towards towards low price to book to earn low price to book, low price to earnings, low price to sales, you avoided the exact same stocks and you overweighted all the same junk right. that that a fundamental index or rob or not would be underweighting. You get to the same place. He came up with a great way to explain value investing as being indifferent to price. It is a very specific value tilt. Mm -hmm. um, the, so it's the it's paper... wonderful, it's just less new. The paper he put out that I found endlessly amusing, if you can say that about a white paper, was that you could take any of these fundamental metrics, dividend yield, earnings growth, sales growth, and either the uh, that metric or the inverse of that metric beats capitalization, meaning we're going to take the and weight this by the fastest growing earnings or invert it and, and reverse it. As long as it's essentially what that says is as long as it's not market cap, it's going to be better. What happens there, um, and I don't remember the specific measures he, he used, but if you get anything close to an equal weighted portfolio, a, a, to a random or an equal weighted portfolio, that's why he named it after Malkiel's monkeys, because mm -hmm. that's the ultimate uh, um, a, 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 you know, statement about a random portfolio. If you get any kind of random portfolio, it ends up tilting towards small value. See, Rob phrases it in terms of- Say that again. If you take a random portfolio- Diversified enough that you can't randomly pick just tech stocks. Mm -hmm. um, if you take a random portfolio, it starts to look a lot like an equal weighted portfolio. Right. Both of those, random or equal weight, will on average look small because there are a lot more small stocks. there's more stocks, small stocks than large stocks. And will look cheap because those guys were overpriced or expensive because of rational reasons. I'll try mm -hmm. to- not to not to fight that battle here, but those guys who are are very expensive are bigger market caps. Mm -hmm. So they're to make up the total market cap, they have to be more Got cheap it. guys. That makes sense. So if you get that random portfolio, it's a fun finding, but it really is saying something. And again, I this one I'm not saying uh, uh, I'm not kind of lacking. There's great originality in this finding, but we kind of knew it again. Um, we weren't so it's not beta, meaning it's not the market. We know I, it's not beta. I doubt beta. there's beta going on. I, get, I, get, I, doubt, I doubt there's a tremendous. If you randomly select a portfolio, it probably goes the other way. You're probably a little high beta. And uh, it's not new because we knew this for a long You're saying this was known for a while. But it's a great way. It's a fantastic it's awesome. way to show it. It's awesome again. Yes. But if you pick a random portfolio, uh, you will be smaller and cheaper than, 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 than the market. 
Um, it doesn't mean you should pick a random portfolio. You, you, once you think small and cheap work, you might want to be a little more systematic about it than throwing darts. Rob's right. way, our way, other DFA's ways, other ways, I would say are better than random. Right. <laughs> but random will get you a little towards small and cheap. A little closer to Which it. is so, a fun finding. It, it absolutely is. Let's take um, a I look I keep at trying to buy Rob's monkeys. He won't sell them. Um, you could go and pick up monkeys pretty much anywhere these days. <laughs> Any monkey will work? Uh, go to Merrill, oh, go to Morgan, he had, I thought go to Goldman. I thought he had could... special monkeys. <laughs> no, he just takes, you know, dis, dis, the, he takes discarded traders oh. and, and puts them- uh, uh, I still work in this field. I'm not going to laugh at that on-, on <laughs> So do I, but on the mic. I, I care less than you. <laughs> um, so let's talk about the Buffett. Uh, let's talk about the Buffett- a quantitative approach to Warren Buffett, which I thought was um, quite, uh, is charming the right word for a white uh, paper? Uh, we'll take charming. Okay. Um, this was written by colleagues of mine, uh, David mm -hmm. Cabello, Lasse Peterson, and Andrea Frazzini. Um, so I'm just going to take credit for their work or blame because I'm the one. Okay. I'm the one here. Um, they did a really fun thing. Um, they and by the way, let me say beforehand, in case we don't get to it, we ended up with. Uh, we, we had tremendous, uh, incredible respect for his investing skill beforehand, and we ended up there afterwards. Mm -hmm. um, when we say, and we do a couple times, and I, I'm going to guess he wouldn't agree with this. Uh, I, I've not spoken to the man personally about it. We say things like we explain his alpha. Mm -hmm. That is saying that after 30, 40 years, we've seen that these are factor tilts. He did it 34 years ago, 30, 40 years ago. He stuck with it through incredibly big ups and downs. He has not always made made Look money. At the late 90s. Yeah. People were like, oh, Warren Buffett's late 90s, lost it. In oh, a bull he's market. over. He's done. Uh, 70s, he suffered greatly in the bear market. He's, mm -hmm. he's had his ups and downs. Um, but what they did was they took some of, admittedly, the standard things people like us look at. Mm -hmm. Same things you and I have been talking about. Value. Yes, not surprisingly. He has a tilt towards systematic value. Doesn't mean he's a quant following the strategy. Right. It just means his returns tend to correlate. Tend to move when when cheap beats expensive. It's a better time for Buffett. Mm -hmm. At a time like '99, when expensive crushes right. cheap, all else equal, your guess would be not as good a time for Buffett. He had no waiting on momentum. Not surprising. How could a man whose holding period preferred holding period is forever, an actual right. holding period is very very strong, very very long, really have a loading on momentum? You need mm -hmm. to rebalance to load on momentum. If he had one, we would have doubted our data. He also loaded, though, interestingly on the major measures for quality, things like profitable companies and low-risk companies. and he's, But he talks about that all the time, is I buy this as, this as if I'm buying a company that's private, unaware of what the Here, stock here's, is doing. Here's an accurate but very nice, but still, I think, not, not over nice, just, just accurately nice way to describe it. He does what he says he does, and that's what our mm -hmm. guys verified. Now, that might seem like a small thing, but do you know how many times you go look and find someone doesn't do right. what they say they do? He systematically, and he's not following a quant system, but he systematically, with a great, nice fit, long-term, looks like someone looking for cheap, profitable, low-risk stocks. And then here's something that I do believe we just know he does. He applies a modest amount of leverage to it. Mm -hmm. If you buy low-risk stocks, you tend to, and this is something we believe. So you, let's let's talk about, let's let's pivot on this to your discussion on risk parity. Okay. Where well, they we're, are related. Right. Well, that's why I wanted to bring it up because most people talk about allocation in terms of asset class. When we talk about risk parity, we're really talking about allocation in terms of different types yeah. of risk. And you have said, you know, and I, I'll give you an opportunity to caveat this that <laughs> I haven't. Oh, I'm going to caveat the hell Use judiciously, use with the right 
assets used at the right time, a little bit of leverage is not a terrible thing. Yeah. Um, and, and here, you guys can all think I'm wimpy for all the caveats, but you got to be very careful. I would never want to be quoted as just saying leverage is a good thing. Because you go take a concentrated bet that's already scary and lever it, you've made it super right. scary. You go lever something that's not very liquid um, with leverage that has a shorter time horizon, shorter term. Long-term capital um, management we call is that, the, we, that's the poster child for that. I, I, it's, they've certainly become that. Um, I, I, uh, we call that the death combination. It's a bit mm -hmm. melodramatic. Uh, and it can happen uh, You know, if anyone does it. No one has magic. Leveraging a, a, a illiquid asset with, with leverage you have to pay back tomorrow, that's, that's extremely dangerous. And, and as we saw in the last crisis, um, uh, borrowing long and mm -hmm. funding it short is a uh, meaning long-term obligations that are funded with short-term uh, cash flow is a, is a terrible combination. It, it, it always has been, and there's always the lure, and it always happens again. Now, here's where we think leverage can be useful. Um, and you, I, you and I just talked about the case of Warren Buffett, where he has low-risk, low-beta stocks. Mm -hmm. So he thinks those do tend to outperform their risk over time. Mm -hmm. uh, there has been a strong results for very long periods that low-risk stocks do better than they should. But that doesn't mean they actually do better than high-risk stocks. They're supposed to lose, and they refuse to lose. Mm -hmm. If a low-risk stock keeps up with a high-risk stock, just keeps up. You go, wow, that's not supposed to happen. Yeah, where's the risk premium if, if Correct. that's the case? Correct. Having said that, if you don't apply some leverage, Buffett actually wouldn't have outperformed. He would have kept up at low risk. Got it. And I don't think he was too interested in that. He's not looking for risk-adjusted returns. He wanted to eat them. People always say you can't eat risk-adjusted returns with some mild leverage. You can't. You can it. go too far. Uh, 25 to 1? No. Warren Buffett's 1.6 to 1? Pretty good idea. And a guy who's also sitting with $40 billion of yeah. cash and no borrowed money- yeah. Uh, he's and the pretty way, bulletproof. And the way he structured his business, exactly. There's a form of alpha to that. We say he stuck with things through thick and thin. Mm -hmm. He That requires incredible mental fortitude. Uh, even with a great structure, anyone can cave on their own just from panic. He didn't do that, but he also structured it so no one else could make him throw in the towel. So now let's talk about something because you're, you're making me think of things I, we didn't I'm get I'm sorry. To. I'm, 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 I'm a tangent guy. No, no, no. I love these digressions because you're making me think of other stuff. We didn't get to the August 07 quad wreck. Oh, okay. I was hoping and to avoid that. I was hoping to run out the clock on we you. Could, we could do something no, else. I'm kidding. Go know. on, go on. So, so, so well, let me set this up in a way that I couldn't on the radio because it was too long. So 07, so in June 07, we have the Bear Stearns hedge fund collapse. A lot of quant funds are crunching the same numbers. I don't want to say they're looking at these same things, but a lot of the same data everybody looks at. And so you ended up with similar positions across a lot of different quant funds. You actually talk about this in the book, The Quants, to some, some yeah. degree. And so August 07 is a debacle and your fund gets shellacked. You're down 13% in a month. In a week. In a change. week. I'm sorry. In a week, down yeah, 13%. Let's, let's not soft soap it. So down 13% in a week. What the hell? You know is the that numbers like? better than I don't even remember the precise number, but I do remember the time frame. Thirty. Um. And, and by the way, <laughs> he's, he's, that's you, you want me to go cheat. to the number? No, you, no, you I had, believe you. I was not was disputing it. Thirty-nine billion across. This is the this you were smaller fund yeah. ten years ago, and this was right in the middle of the financial crisis. You started out at thirty-nine billion, and you ended at seventeen billion. Yeah. Now uh, that's got to be a painful thing oh to personal Lord. experience. Oh my lord! Yeah, most. Uh, but I'll, before before you answer, you and let, you and I are two walking tangents. So so before you answer, I just want listeners to understand 
this has a happy ending. Has a happy ending. You stuck with the model and you recovered and then some. It actually turned out to be long-term a winner. But what was it like in that month when you're just watching assets get destroyed? If you'll permit me, I want to back up one second. Sure. On on your numbers sound exactly right on on the shrinkage of our firm, which is another sign. I told you I have a great research staff. Um, <laughs> with that said, one thing that I, I should have made clear much earlier is, and, and I think you know this, Barry, is we're not uh, 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 by any means uh, only a hedge fund. That's a minority of what we do. A mm-hmm. lot of what we do is long only. So a fair amount of that came from just market shrinking. Right. You know, every asset manager shrunk by a lot. I mean, we had a very rough time. I we had That was like 20% yeah. in a couple of months, the I, whole market I, moved back. And then over the whole financial crisis, it was more than a 50% drawdown right. for stocks. 57 so on the S&P We actually 500. didn't lose a ton of clients. We, 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 we lost some, uh, but mostly we watched our assets shrink with the markets. But none of that makes your figures for August wrong. This was a harrowing- f- I remember. Maybe it wasn't near death, but it felt near death. Hold and, on a second. You said, and I love giving you your own quotes. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm looking for your exact quotes. We grim- were looking the Grim Reaper in the face. Well, I, I mean a particular person. I'm, I'm friendly. I'm <laughs> friends with Ken Griffin, um, uh, who is one of the hedge fund managers I, I, I believe in. I think this guy is a pretty amazing guy. Uh, runs Citadel, Citadel in Chicago. Absolutely. Um, he. Um, is famous for being a smart investor. When something's very distressed and facing doom, he goes and buys it very cheaply. Ken yeah. called me near the nadir of this, and my assistant just goes, Ken Griffin's on the line. Oh, and um, no. I think I actually wrote, I could see the Valkyries coming. I could feel, <laughs> um, and in fact, he just wanted to Cue chat. Cue the Wagner. Wagner. <laughs> and, 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 I, and I literally said, you know, I think we're actually pretty stable here. I don't think we're, but, but if Ken thinks we're dying, we must be dying. Um, so See, I, if you were a contrarian, you would you would say if Ken thinks we're dying, we're going to be okay. Yeah. Well, he for, wants the bias. I, we got to stay with I, it. I will be honest. For most people, I, I am a contrarian. With Ken, I start to think maybe he knows something I don't know. <laughs> um, maybe he knows it's worse than I think. Uh, but so let's 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 roll roll back. What happened? You are exactly right. I do not deny for a second that that quants do related things. Everyone has their own twist on it. Right. Um, how to measure it better. Some some parts of what we do or others do are completely different than others, but by and large, the two of the key things in all of quantitative management I've talked about with you for a few hours now are value and momentum investing. Mm-hmm. You can have every twist in you, in the world you want. We think value works better if you don't make an industry bet, for instance, if you buy the cheap and sell the expensive within every industry. Within each sector, within each each, each um, subgroup. It, it can work a little bit for industries, but it is stronger, risk-adjusted, certainly. You're not, that industry is harder to compare. I, one tiny example. Everyone has a twist is my only example, but they're correlated. If you're, if, you're, if you're running a quant shop, and let's do a hedge fund, not a beat the benchmark. Right. You're long, cheap, with good momentum, and you're short, expensive, with bad momentum. Again, the models do other things than that, but let's say that's it. And I'm doing the same, and we've worked for 10 years separately, and we've done tweaks, and we both think our model's better than the other guy and better than they were 10 years ago. That might or might, it's not going to be true for both of us, but we both could be better than 10 years ago, and one of us is in reality better. It's not going to matter the, the, in, the, in, the, in the 10 days value and momentum both get utterly obliterated. Right. We both have a common theme. That Venn diagram is going to have a huge yeah. overlap. And, and it's going to be the most extreme in that period. Now- I can speak for ourselves. We were not, I think, maybe we were, um, but I don't think we were naive about this going into that time. We knew a ton of more people were doing quants than when we started 15, mm-hmm. you know, we started in mid-90s, this was 12 years uh, later. We A ton more people uh, were doing it. Um, we measure, we wrote a paper on this during the tech bubble and we still do it. 
we measure the longs versus the shorts. How cheap are they? They're always a little bit cheaper. Remember, value is a big part of our model. Right. So if they weren't cheaper, we're just doing it wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, so we hope they're cheaper or else, or else we're adding it up wrong. You know, if, if, if cheap is part of your model, a big part of your model, and what you're long is not cheaper than what you're short. You, 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 <laughs> that's backwards. That's backwards. You, you, your math is off. Um, so, but, but they're not always the same amount cheaper. At the, at ah, the peak okay. of the so that spread can vary yeah. dramatically. Flip it over. Talk about how much more expensive the expensive stocks are. Got it. As you can imagine, at the peak of the tech bubble was the most that number's ever been. The expensive stocks were ridiculously way more than Off historical. Off the charts, crazy yeah. expensive. Going into August of, of 07, and we were thinking about this. We were worried it was crowded. This number was about its long-term average. Really? Yeah. Which, That's now there, very interesting. Now, there are a lot more people doing quant, but someone is on the other side. Mm -hmm. This is a question we try to ask ourselves all the time. Um, my colleague, uh, uh, Ant Ilman, and I are going to write a, a paper on this with the title, Who's on the Other Side? Mm -hmm. Anytime you do a strategy, a trade, whatever you do, you should say, whose money am I taking? And if you don't have a good answer, you probably shouldn't be doing it. Uh, we think- uh, it, Who's the sucker at the poker yeah, table? Yeah, exactly. Is it that exactly. Business? If it's not you, it, it's a more- If you can't spot them, it means it's you. Uh, after I, Everyone has a different version. After half an hour, if you can't spot, spot the sucker, it's you. It's the, <laughs> it's the trading version, the strategy version of that. So what we said to ourselves is this has not been arbitraged away. This is not a ton of capital that has made cheap stocks no longer very cheap. Mm -hmm. for, it compressed that whole spectrum. And here's where I think, you know, I think we went further than most in even worrying about it. A lot of people were pretty blasé uh, about it, but we didn't get it right. We still had a disaster. So what happened is if you had asked me before August of 07, I would have thought that a, a, a not a precondition, but but to for something to crash, it, it was far more likely to crash if it was expensive. And this was, was not was expensive. Cheap, right. It turns out, and this is really quite obvious, I just thought it was less likely, not impossible, that if everyone tries to sell on the same day, it doesn't matter if it's expensive or cheap. Right. It was really and, just the, the crowded trade unwinding. And my version of what happened in July and August of 07, it's very similar to what you said, but but I think we've actually tracked it. We still don't know the actual firm that began the selling. We joke, we call them patient zero. Right. Um, but uh, it was- the it, But that's a great metaphor because yeah. it is a virus. It was the first kind of uh, echoing, the first adumbration of the, of, the, of the financial crisis was in July, following that Bear Stern stuff. In July, credit got really pummeled. Mm -hmm. And a lot of particular hedge funds had added quant during a great five-year run. And this is, I think, dangerous. They weren't quants in their, in their DNA. They added it. They hired a guy. They, they saw it was doing well. Right. They hired a guy. They gave him some capital and said, try not to mess and up. And then this is hard, literally still hard to prove. But what we think happened is credit got slammed in July. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these people said, we just got a lower risk. We weren't particularly against quant. We just got a lower risk and all tried to lower everything they do at once. And were very common in their quant right. trades. And then like, like all these stories, um, it, it, it just got rolling. And this was much more, this was not a bear market for quant. This was closer to a quant flash crash. Uh -huh. It was it was, no one's described it that way. That's I, a I great, came up with it in the car on the way here. That's I'd never a great thought of it that description, way though. But the it, quant flash and crash it was of slower than the flash crash, but it was three weeks instead of a day. But it's not. It was a brutal three weeks. Yeah, the, and roughly the first half of that was down, and the next half of it was making two thirds of it back. Um, and you are right; we did stick with what we do, um, which is a question I have to ask you just from a um, uh, a judicial temperament uh, <laughs> question is. How do you live with that oh, as a, as well, the CIO? Everyone the at my firm is laughing here because um, I, I wish this was not public information, uh, but the Wall Street Journal ran a couple stories and the Quant book talked about this 
Uh, By the way, that Quant book is one of my favorite books. It's fantastic. I um, my major beef with that book is they 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 tell me he reports I was a fat kid in high school. Right. I'm a fat guy now. So I'm um, the same. It's way. not fair. I was not. Right. I, I was, was a skinny I was, kid. I was, this is why all... is he assuming that. I, that's a tough. It's uh, yellow journalism. Um, but <laughs> it's. I'll speak to Patterson. And, I, I had. And get a I had several friends from high school call me up and go, "Yeah, you're chubby now, but you were okay back then." Right. Um, but, um, <laughs> you know, to your point, uh, uh, this is a little embarrassing, but uh, I, I might have punched my computer screen a couple times and and had it visible and had the Wall Street Journal actually write about it. Uh, so you just smashed a uh, yeah. I and and plasma. either I throw a lousy punch or View Sonic really. Is they doing make a very good well. good monitor. I should have been a commercial for them because I right. hit it with my best cross and did Nothing. no damage to it. Um, the journal. <laughs> I, I'm sorry for the segue, but the journal. Wrote no, no, this, these are great. I wrote a letter to the journal thinking they would never publish it. Right. I love the Wall Street Journal, but they're not known for their hilarity. And I wrote what I thought was a humorous letter doesn't um, translate into type very often I, but but i forgot that as the subject of a story they they feel a, and they have great journalistic integrity i think they feel a a, uh, a that they should publish your response sure but i wrote what i thought was a whimsical response that had no chance of being published mm -hmm. i wrote your reporter uh, wrote that on several occasions on bad days i punched the computer um i can't disagree with the facts but he left out a very important thing on each of those days the monitor deserved it the That's next funny. day, it's in the journal. That's hilarious. Um, and I swear to God. Did any, what was the response to that? I, I, that's I think really... people, people like that. Um, uh, human foibles are okay, but being able to laugh at yourself is okay, of too. Course. And I do find myself ridiculous at times. Uh, like you met that. my wife. There's no one more ridiculous than me in our eyes. <laughs> well, you know, that's absolutely why, true. Why, uh, spouses and children uh, have no respect for you, no matter who you are. Um, that's why you get dogs. That's, that's, dogs. You know the line I love is Winston we, Churchill. We we uh, hope to Winston become Churchill. the, oh, the pe person our dogs think we are. Oh, that's awesome! I have a Winston Churchill line that he said he prefers pigs, because as pets, because dogs look up to you, cats look down to you, pigs look you straight in the eye. <laughs> Which um, I don't know if that's actually true. But I it's like a, it. It's a great. I, I like that. It, it's so, a great quote. So let me bring this back. So sure. you're you're running thirty billion dollars or so. The market is just. We're getting hammered. miserable. No, actually, what, do you take that home at night? Barry, How do you keep the, faith the, within your models? Things, in that? The quant, quant world was miserable. Mm -hmm. One thing left out occasionally is is this was after a bad month and before the GFC, right? But over the full painful period for quants, the S and P was actually up slightly. We didn't rattle the world. The world right. had nothing to do. We lost. I like to say we lost money all on our own. Right. Our, our our shorts went up and our longs went down. Right. But the market was it was it, it was it, neutral. We were about to have a bad. That, that's the called the market that, neutral yeah. fund. Well, <laughs> I, I'd hate to try to sell this to clients at the time. Is no, it's okay because because we are market neutral. <laughs> uh, but I would prefer it to happening there than in a crash because it does fit the spirit. So so emotionally. Want. Oh, mostly, you, are you taking this home at night? Other than the occasional view sonic damage. I, I, I'll try to be very introspective about this. I'm really bad at internalizing something I preach, that this is a statistical process in a fat-tailed world. Stuff right. will happen. It will work long term. Um, I, I do get emotional because I want it to work. Right. Um, and it's frustrating and, to stare at red all yeah, day long. Absolutely. And you get something um, that, uh, that I and others have called time dilation. We're trying to be mm -hmm. physicists here. Right. But- what feels like a like a very long time is actually not. You, you, you know, you, you stare at it for a whole day, uh, which we're not supposed to do, right. by the way. You're supposed to, um, it, it, you know, it's a statistical thing. You check a few times, but staring at it every day is not, all day is not productive. You stare at something all day, you'll feel like you just went through every up and down and since, uh, a few hours. Since, since the flood. Um, but what I've actually, and I and my firm are actually pretty good at 
is not letting our emotions affect our investment process. So, so you is, stuck with the models, even the though models. it might have been really churning you in the kishkas. Yeah. It was really bothering uh, the you. The kishkas were aflame. But uh, <laughs> we did a few things. Now, when something's not working, I think 98% of the time the right thing to do is nothing. Mm-hmm. Maybe some risk control if the bet's too big, but, but almost nothing. Don't just Mo- do something, sit there. Exactly. And that's very often uh, the right thing to do, far more often. I, I think you want to keep your mind, uh, if not open, slightly ajar. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could take that a few different ways. Right. To, no, you know, has the world really changed? It almost never does uh, when they say it does, but could happen. Uh, is there some reason our process won't work going forward? Um, and we try every time there's a bad result. And that, that was the ultimate example. But every time we've had, you know, we've done this for almost 20 years, including Goldman Sachs. Mm-hmm. Uh, life's been net good to us. But if it's never, we're not better than Warren Buffett and he's had bad times. Right. Um, so, so I sense that you're good at emotionally compartmentalizing yeah, uh, the, people the, would, the, the uh, volatility and the, you I, know, your, the natural human reaction to panic or get greedy. I'm, I wish I were good at having it not get to me the same way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, have, I and my firm have gotten very good and, and always have been pretty, pretty darn good at not letting it affect what we actually do. Mm-hmm. If you th- I like to put it this way. Um, we trade on what we think are at least partially, somewhat risk, and we're still in the pharma camp partially, but somewhat behavioral biases. That desire to run away and take off a process you know is a good process mm-hmm. is a behavioral bias. It's, it, what is, what is uh, a, a run on the strategy uh, where people, too many people try to get out? That makes it better. Mm-hmm. Going forward, if you're a believer, you've been right all along. It was a crowded trade. Yeah. Now it's a scar- scarce and, and, and I'll tell you, we took too much comfort, and I mentioned it earlier, that it wasn't expensive in the beginning. It was about the 50th percentile. By the nadir, by the low point, it was the 95th percentile attractive. And you have to like that. And you love that intellectually. Doesn't mean your kishkas are not battling each other. I, right. I'm going to say that more often. Um, but we've gotten very good at, at sticking with with things. While keeping that mind, uh, a, a jar sounds a little crazy. I'm gonna have to come up with a but, separate. But phrase. I know exactly. Not quite open. That may, that's too willy nilly. That's like, uh, yeah, maybe we're wrong. We'll you're, take it off. You're open to the possibility yeah. that everything you're doing is wrong, while knowing mathematically it's, it's proven it's itself unlikely. Over time. So you should look at right. it with an open mind, expecting not to find anything. But if you do, if you you know, for instance, there are certain strategies, strategies that are about speed. Mm-hmm. Um, there are famous ones, earnings surprise, when earnings announcements come out, maybe that still has a little bit of efficacy, but nowhere near what it once had because the world has gotten much faster. Um, so if you see an actual reason why your strategy shouldn't work anymore, I'm not saying you should keep doing what you've done in the past forever, but if you see no reason why what you've done in the past, what you think has worked for a hundred years in 50 different places should not continue to work. You should not let short-term results dissuade you. And we have gotten very, very good. And I think we've always... We've always been good, but even better over time at learning that lesson. The few times I've ever violated that, and those stories I'll take to the grave, mm-hmm. I have regretted. Anytime you violated, when you know the math backs up what you're haven't, doing. Haven't done it in more than a decade, but a few times, you, you know, you don't say I'm violating this. You convince yourself. Well, you this might, is the exception yeah, to my you rule. You convince yourself it's the right thing. Uh, you get data on it. You change your model. You tweak it. Uh, the whole world is fake. And by the way, this is not just quants. How many non, how many non quants have a strong investment thesis that will turn out to be right, but occasionally cave on it when it gets too painful? How how often do we hear about a fund blowing up and find out? Gee, you know, if they weren't either using borrowed money or so leveraged or what have you, yeah. if they just stuck it out another six months, the uh, MF Global, yeah. even the thing that blew up MF Global, a year later that would have been a great that's, trade. That's exactly right. 
things like whether leverage is useful, how much leverage is safe, how much volatility you can take, getting those lines of credit lined up right if you if you do that, how much you can take mm-hmm. are all about surviving the short term. At no point should you do a strategy, and this is art, not science. I'm not claiming that I have a perfect quant model for this, but you should – the perfect strategy – that you can't stick with, whether for real reasons that your creditors say you're done, or emotional right. reasons that, that that we all have a breaking just point. Just can't, just can't. You can't take it. The great strategy you can't stick with, and this is obvious, but I think really important. The great strategy you can't stick with is obviously vastly inferior to the very good strategy you can right. stick with. Suboptimal beats optimal if you can't run with optimal. This comes up with investment advisors a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I and 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 this is something you know much more about than I am than I do. Um. I think they have a huge role in helping structure a portfolio, but I think the single most important thing they do is make sure people stick with their plan through the long term. We we talk about that in the office all the time, that we we like to pretend that we're investment managers, but we're really behavioral counselors. And a lot of that is before anybody puts a dime to work, hey, this is a great strategy, but when this is down 20%, are you going to yeah. – uh, the old joke is uh, you know, your, your portfolio is getting killed. How how are you sleeping? Oh, I sleep like a baby. Really? You're, you're down 27%. Well, I wake up every hour, wet myself, and cry for mommy is, is the punchline. That, 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 that cliche has never worked for that exact reason. Babies sleep lousy. Yeah, no, it's um, a terrible... Uh, but now... Innocent is what they're going for. They sleep right. innocent. Um, but go on, sorry. So, no, but it's that thing is, is... It's funny because the more I'm listening to you, the more I'm thinking you are precisely, precisely... Halfway between Fama and Schiller, <laughs> which is not a bad place to, you know, if you're going to pick an island to live on, that's a damn good island I, to I, live um, on. You know, I'd sign for that in a heartbeat quality-wise. I think philosophy-wise, I, I, I really am and have been for a long, long time. I, and it all comes back to thinking markets are not perfect, but they're they're harder to beat than people think. There's the Schiller's the first part, Fama's the second part. Um, taking risk, uh, and, and it's, again, art mixed with science— uh, taking risk uh, gets paid off over time. Taking too much risk, and you won't live to see to see the ending. And then the things, uh, you know, it's very funny. Fama Schiller, uh, Fama would probably believe in value more than momentum, but the firm he works with, DFA, uses some momentum uh, in their in their in their process. Uh, we would use more. I'm not saying there aren't differences. Momentum is mm-hmm. more of an inefficient uh, um, uh, market story. Uh, but they use they try to avoid shorting momentum, and I won't get into the the geeky side. So even there. We're a point on a spectrum difference. We're not a sea change. Right. One joke, uh, I had f- I, I did a little TV um, where I had Fama and Schiller come on after their Nobel Prize mm-hmm. uh, separately. I wasn't trying to create a steel cage match. Um, but uh, it, And I pointed out to both of them, and I think they both uh, I think they both agreed with this, that they both put on pretty similar portfolios, mm-hmm. uh, mostly uh, value tilt, some momentum to what they do. Again, probably more momentum for Schiller than Fama, uh, more market timing uh, for Schiller than Fama. Uh, but they would interpret it as working for radically different reasons. So it's kind of like, remember me and Rob are not um, mm-hmm. fundamental indexing wins. He thinks it's brand new. I think it's the value effect. But we get to the same place. Just just take different routes. Cliff, you've been so generous with your time, and I know your your staff is is looking to uh, take you to your next appointment. I want to thank you. Said you said that so nicely, my uh, staff. That makes staff. me sound so important. Um, well, you are important. You're, you're, uh, let me blow a little smoke your way. Uh, it's not just that Fortune or Forbes or whoever it was called your hedge fund very influential. You consistently publish deeply thoughtful white papers. Forget the fact that they regularly win awards, best paper of the year, this and that. You are part of 
the philosophical and financial debate that is moving the world to finance forward. And and the joke in physics, we you and I talked about about science earlier. There's a famous joke, I forgot who I'm 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 stealing this from, who said physics advances one funeral at a time. It turns out finance doesn't have to advance that way. It advances one white paper at a time, as long as it's written in an intelligent, cogent, and persuasive way that enough people say, hey, this guy is really impacting finance, and um, that's a smoke I'll blow your way. very nice of you to say. Um, I appreciate that. I also punch computers when we lose, and I have a face for radio, but I will take the compliment. Uh, same, same here. I've been speaking with... Clifford Asnes, he is the founder and CIO of uh, AQR. Um, if you enjoy these sort of conversations, you can look up an inch or down an inch on iTunes and see all of the previous uh, Masters in Business series. Cliff, thank you so much for spending so much time thank with you, us. Thank you, Barry. This was great. This is Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.